Hey everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Agnye. How you feeling, Mark? I feel good. I feel like Indiana Jones finding out about the meaning of St. Patrick's Day. What? Let that one sink in. How are you feeling? <laughs> I feel like, I don't feel, I feel like the last name on the list. That's what I feel like. The last one? Okay. Yeah, the very last one. <laughs> Um, so yeah, how you doing this week? Doing good. Uh, I've come up with another set of plots for you. Yes, we're going to play a game. We're going straight into it. We're going to play another game of plot or not. So Mark has, uh, devised basically some fake plots, right? Or there's some real and some aren't. Yeah, some real, some fake. This week, uh, we got some science fiction for you. Okay, did you do science fiction that's like actual science fiction or like Amazon self-published science fiction? Uh, no, I got some I got some uh, legit stuff here. Uh, not cool. to say that's not legit, but, but you know what I mean. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Traditionally bestseller published yeah. bestseller sci-fi. Yes. <laughs> All right, I'm going to see if I'm going to recognize some. I actually have, uh, I won't do spoilers for any of our many fans on the podcast, but I have a sci-fi book that I'm like burning a hole in my pocket right now that I want to read, so. Uh. Nice. Okay, ready? First one. Ready. Men called them overlords. They had come from outer space. They had brought peace and prosperity to Earth. But then the change began. It appeared first in the children, frightening, incomprehensible. Now the overlords made their announcement. This was to be the first step in the elimination of the human race and the beginning of what? Ooh, um, <laughs> that might, I, I, I want to make a guess about what that, what book title that is. This is okay. how specific my knowledge is. No, I, I don't know. That kind of, I can't remember every detail, but is that the plot to Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke? Yes, it is. Damn, man! I called Good you one. out. I got—I not only knew that that was real, I knew what the plot was. Yeah, I couldn't remember. That book is a great book, um, but I couldn't remember if it that specifically had to do with children. But I guess it does. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was actually like the <clears throat> blurb from the back of the book. Yeah. Have you read that book? Yeah, I have not. That book is really cool. Um, I, I think my favorite theme from that book, which is like, if anything, is. Um, you, do you know the theory of ancient aliens? Like the idea, the idea that aliens have have visited our planet, and that's why we have like religion and stuff like that. Uh, vaguely. So yeah, that's like a that's like a basic theory. It was like a show on like History Channel that people got into for like a hot second. But um, Childhood's End is sick because like the aliens look like devils. Yeah. Like they look like Satan, like like with big horns and stuff. And then it's like, that's the reason why we think that devils look that way because they had visited us like in the ancient <laughs> past. So that's Arthur, interesting. Arthur C. Clarke was on that Ancient Aliens tip. Shit. <laughs> so yeah, that's Childhood's End, uh, 1953. Nice. All right, you're off to a good start. All right, next one. Mardi Gras is just underway and retired army doctor Mike Richter just wants to enjoy a weekend away. Little does he know that Canal Street has been targeted by terrorists as a testbed for a dangerous new biochemical weapon known only as NX-9. Can he figure out a way to stop the spread before it's too late? Well, I think that that is not real. You made it up. 
Okay, yeah, you got me. Um, that one. <laughs> Dude, this is like the highest score anyone's ever gotten on plot or not. I think I should get uh, extra points. I called th- this one uh, Rage and Contagion. Rage and which, Contagion. Yeah, I thought I came up with it, but I looked it up and it's been done a bunch of times. It's actually, it's like a character from Dragon Quest Nine, I guess. Ooh. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, 2-0. and All right, next two and one. 2-0. Bob is an undercover police agent assigned to spy on the drug sub- drug subculture of his own Orange County household. While posing as a drug user, Bob ends up becoming addicted to the powerful psychoactive drug known as Substance D. Will his addiction make his job impossible? I think that that is real. Damn it. Okay. Is that real? <laughs> that's a sc- that's a Scanner Darkly. Oh, okay. I, I really like the uh, I like all these I like the things in sci-fi. What was that like thing that he's addicted to? What's it called? Substance D. Substance D. And like the one that yeah. you made up in New Orleans is like NX Nine. <laughs> yeah, sick. <laughs> so good. That was uh, something from my job actually, and just borrowed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is NX Nine? Tell like us the good. truth. Tell us the truth. What's uh, NX Nine? No, it's 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 just a database for like information uh, okay. about. Uh, transformers yeah um not yeah not real science fiction (laughs) um okay next one Uh, the moonwalkers have always lived underground their labyrinthine tunnels have expanded with every generation but one day with a thud the impenetrable bottom of the world has been uncovered with expansion now an impossibility will overpopulation and suddenly finite resources destroy the colony for good Whoa. Did you make that? Did you make is that, that up? Guess? That's my guess. <laughs> okay, yeah, I made that one. Um, that one is sick. It's about. <laughs> it sounds I started like... with the name. What's the name? Alien Ant Farm. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It sounds That's like... That's I did Moonwalkers. It reminds me of like the like plot of... What's the H.G. Wells book where there's like people like under the earth or whatever and like the time machine? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking with that, thinking like uh, Truman Show, like, you know, he hits the, the wall. Yeah, he hit the, like, oh, yeah that was that part was cool. I want to I, I want to legitimately want to read that. I was like, oh, they reached the end. What does it mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that could be something. Okay, next one. We're gonna come up with like we're gonna come up with like an actual plot that we publish with one of these things. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) one of them. All right, next one. On a dark and stormy night, when a bolt of lightning forces Brett Matthews off the road, his car skids into a government laboratory where a top secret experiment is underway. He swerves into the path of Doctor Chase's molecular transfer ray, causing him and his car to become one. Real. Got you. <laughs> oh, Dan, you wrote that? His car and him become one? When a bolt of lightning forced me off the road, my car skidded into a government laboratory where a top-secret experiment was underway. I swerved into the path of Dr. Chase's molecular transfer ray, causing me and my car to become one. <laughs> that speed racer? <laughs> the incredible turbo team. Turbo Team. <laughs> Turbo Team. I was like, what 1984, the 
Uh, it's a cartoon from 1984. They only made 13 episodes, and it's hilarious. Um, oh damn! Is it is it like speed? Is it like trying to be Speed Racer? No, no, it's trying to be like Knight Rider mixed with uh, uh, Transformers, I guess. Whoa! But um, it's kind of like a low budget where like the final product. They only made 13 episodes, and the final product is full of like editing errors and stuff, and like really bad doves it's 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 really awesome i would uh encourage people to check it out on youtube <laughs> nice but the, the whole story is the kid um he turns into like a car which is like an 80s firebird mm-hmm. he turns into a car like based on the temperature of his body <laughs> oh really so so, can, like is it when yeah. it gets too hot or when he gets too cold too hot Ooh, okay <laughs> so he's gotta like keep himself cold yeah yeah is that's like a Rick and Morty, right? Where he like, yeah. <laughs> where like he like turns into a car in the middle of class. <laughs> okay, so I got you with one finally. All right, next one. In a post-apocalyptic world, humanity has been enslaved by tripods, gigantic three-legged walking machines. Society has been reduced to a few small villages, and what little industry exists is conducted under the watchful presence of the tripods. Humans are controlled from the age of 14 by implants called caps, which suppress curiosity and creativity. Meanwhile, a secret resistance is building in the mountains, and 13-year-old Will risks everything to escape his capping ceremony and join them. Real. It's a real plot. Do you know what that is? No. Oh, dude, it's the, um, that's the Tripod series. It's uh, John Christopher. It's like a young, young adult sci-fi from like the 60s. Oh, okay. That it's sounds cool. Freaking, it's it's awesome. Um, Whoa, I'm ready to read that because I've always wanted. I've like I've always wanted like another Ender's Game. You know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this 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 is that for Whoa. sure. You should you should check it out. Um, what the tripods? It sounds like war. Yeah. It sounds like after War of the Worlds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had forgot about it for a really long time. Um, I'm surprised it hasn't been made into a movie. I guess I don't know how popular the books were. Yeah. Well, I feel you like know, they were pretty popular. I don't they got to they got to mine all the rest of the fantasy series before they get yeah. down into the You actually just made me think of cuz when you said like a book series that you hadn't thought of in a while, I just thought of that fantasy series The Book of 3. You remember that? That was like a YA. Mm. There was like oh, a there was like a that? young adult fantasy um thing and the, and the first book in it was called The Book of 3. Those those books were good. I should read those again. Yeah. They kind of remind me of like the Ursula Le Guin uh, okay. sort of stuff. Earthsea, nice. remember that? Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Okay. So you are five and one right now. Damn. All right, next one. Marooned on the planet Aldebaran Three, where the atmosphere itself is treacherous due to unbearable pressure and uninhabitable temperatures, Commander Raychan is stuck with the impossible mission of stopping a threat bigger than time itself. With the help of his encyclopedic AI companion, can the commander complete his mission before the fourth moon rises? <laughs> you wrote it. <laughs> well, okay, th- this one, I'm, I'm going to let you decide. So this is something I alluded to before, where Raymond Chandler, the mm-hmm. like noir author, right. made, made fun of science fiction. And he wrote like a little blurb 
Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. I took that little, I took that like story that he put together and tried to make like a summary of it. Even a bigger one of it? Well, then <laughs> yeah. that, that yeah, one's 50-50. One. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the full point. We'll round it up. That shit's funny, though. I'll post it on the Twitter because it's too long to read. But he basically invents Google and he just talks about like, <laughs> bright blue bright blue manda grass my my breath froze into pink pretzels <laughs> krylon yeah. vibrations and transparent cysticites <laughs> right yeah that, this was this was when raymond chandler was making fun of science fiction he was yeah, basically was, uh, saying you can make up whatever you want <laughs> it was a letter to his uh, editor hn swanson from 1953 <laughs> uh. <laughs> Okay, you get the point for that. All right, last one. All right, last one. In a post-alien visitation world, there are now six distinct zones on Earth that are full of unexplained phenomena. The governments of the world struggle to keep tight control over these zones to prevent any leakage of artifacts and potential weapons. A subculture of scavengers has emerged who go into the zones to steal the artifacts for profit. What will happen if the mysterious contraband falls into the wrong hands? Hmm, that sort of sounds like the plot to Hunger Games, but it's not, I don't think. Is it? No. Okay. Um, your, uh... I think it. I think it's real. Okay. Yeah, you're right about that. It's not the Hunger Games, though. Uh, you ever seen the movie Stalker? Yes, I have seen Stalker. Tarkovsky? Yeah. That, yeah. This is uh, the plot to basically like a, a I don't know. A thin version of the plot to, uh, <laughs> to Stalker. Roadside Picnic, which is the book that Stalker was based on. Oh, okay. It's from the uh, Strogatsky brothers, Arcadian Whoa. Boris. When, when was that no. published? 1972. Whoa, okay. It's a really cool book. That's awesome. I love yeah, Stalker. It's just like the, yeah, Stalker came out in 79. A lot of people talk about Stalker as like the precursor, like a predictor of Chernobyl. Because there's like that. weird themes in there of like nuclear radiation and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, that's how the like movie ends, right? When he realizes that he, you know, passed on some. Yeah. I should watch Stalker again kid. because the last time I watched Stalker is. My degree is in cinematography, so people were literally only watching that movie for how great the photography was. I don't even think we paid attention to the plot. We were just like watching it and being like, oh, the the blacks look so good. <laughs> the <Yeah>. contrast is perfect. <laughs> we were being such nerds. I don't even I mean, remember it is, the though. plot. <laughs> if you look at any still from that movie, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, it is good. Anyway, so I need to get a lot I need to get better at tricking you. Fucking, you got seven and one. <laughs> seven and one, not champion. That's bullshit. I think Potternot <laughs> is difficult. You're in the more difficult position. I think that's what I'm discovering about this game. When you're writing the the things, it's like hard to overcome. Yeah. yeah. Also, we know each other so well that I'm sort of like, well, you wouldn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> or you would. Okay. Um, yeah, that was awesome. And actually, us talking about Stalker and um, themes of Russia brings me into my book for this week. Nice. Um, so uh, my book follows like another theme. I think we've talked a few times on the podcast about my sort of journey into 
accepting magical realism at its face value. Um, this might fall, this book that I want to cover, first of all, um, I'm really excited to do this book because it's one of the books that I have read sort of like I just finished reading it and I've been, and I was reading it during the development of this podcast and when we were working on the podcast. So you and I have talked a little bit about how now that we're doing this podcast, it sort of changes like things like how you read. Like I'm very like sort of prepared to know everything about the book and there's no like skipping over anything, yeah, and, like yeah. taking notes and stuff. So I'm really excited to do this book. Um, and um, my book this week, and this kind of goes along with the theme of some of the, the ways that I'll pick it apart, is a book that was published in various forms and worked on from 1928 to 1940 and only officially published in novel form in Russia in 1966 to 1967. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, right, the, all, my all my guesses are out of the my guesses are shot. So. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I don't even know. We are talking about the famous Russian novel, The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. Um, so part of the re like part of the reason that I just said all of the different years that it's been published and all the different ways it's been published, it definitely goes along not only with the theme of the book, but also sort of like the theme of Bulgakov's life. Um, this is his most major novel. There's a few other like published plays, some published essays and not and uh, short novels and stuff like that. But for all intents and purposes, The Master and Margarita is sort of his masterwork and definitely something that concerned that like a, a majority of well, a big chunk of his writing career and um, and definitely gave him some angst, which which came through in the novel. So, so, so I know absolutely nothing about this. Okay, but I will chime in <laughs> with something stupid and absolutely. let you know that yesterday was actually National Margarita Day. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we're working on Margarita <laughs> Day. Yeah, that's another thing about this book. Like you, you know, like when you pick it up, it's like, what is it about? Is it about cocktails? Is it about you know, like what's going on here? <laughs> Um, margarita is actually just uh, a semi-common, uh, I think it's actually like a Russian name that when it's translated into English is Margarita. Okay. Um, but uh, Margarita is the name of one of the characters in the book, um, and the master being another character in the book. Um, first, I'm going to talk a little bit about Bogokov's life because it very much kind of plays into how this book was published, but I also want to talk a lot about the book because... It's incredible. I mean, this is this is a book that will come up in themes of Russian literature um, beyond, you know, the massive, you know, mega classics of like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and stuff like that. This is probably your next step into Russian literature would be The Master and Margarita. Um, and I, in a sense, I think a lot of those heavy hitting Russian authors, at least from my perspective, are from, you know, uh, earlier time than Bulgakov. So Bulgakov was dealing with writing during the Soviet Union and during Stalin's regime, which is, you know, extremely different from when Dostoevsky was, was writing um, in mm -hmm. St. Petersburg and stuff. So um, I'm going to talk about his life a little bit. He was, he didn't live very long, first of all, which is a very important sort of theme in his life. He only lived to the age of 48, but he was born 
1891. Um, as we've discussed on the podcast before, that's really not that long ago, even though it feels like it was. Um, that means that he was eight years older than Alfred Hitchcock, so <laughs> not <Yeah>. too long <laughs> ago. Um, he had a really interesting life. He had a he had um, like a like a religious father, but not in the classic sense of like crazy strict religious father. He just had a father who was dedicated, like his dad's job was like, he was some sort of clergyman or like some religious sort of thing, but he was like pretty open person, like encouraged his kids to like read about all religions and stuff like that, which I think at that time was pretty rare. Um, his early life, he went into medical training and he was always a writer. He was always like writing different things, but like family pressure and also just like the pressure of like, having an actual career. He did like some on and off medical training until he did complete his medical training right before World War One. So what does that mean? You like get sucked into the conflict and he was like part of, you know, um, like he was like a like a surgeon during the war, during World War One and stuff like that. And and uh, a doctor, a knowledgeable man. Obviously he witnessed atrocities during that time his brother i actually found something really interesting about his autobi uh, about his autobiography not that he didn't write any autobiography but an interesting thing about his life is that his brothers he had two brothers that went to paris during the 1920s and um at that time you know this is the time when there's a Ukrainian civil war. There's a regime shift. I think in the back of um, my edition of Master of Margarita, there's sort of a summary of his life. And I think it said during one part, during one time of Bulgakov's service, the government between like two or three years, the government changed regime nine times or something like that. So we're talking like really heavy, like no yeah. one in the country knows anything that's happening and no one really knows what's going on. I just found it's really interesting that his brothers were able to emigrate to Paris during the 20s because I can't imagine what the world would be like if Bulgakov was in 1920s Paris. As we all know, that was, you know, Hemingway was there, Gertrude Stein, Proust was rocking it. Um, so <laughs> it would have been a very different world if Bulgakov, I think, went, went into 1920s Paris. And maybe a different world for him. Maybe he wouldn't be as highly regarded as he is now because everything that I'm talking about right now in his life you'll see is reflected in the master of Margarita, his, his masterwork. Interesting. So, so um, after that, I'm going to whip through his biography a little bit because I don't want to take forever. But after that, in 1918, he establishes a private practice in like a small town that's in the middle of nowhere in Russia, I think like somewhere outside of Moscow. And he sees kind of even more crazy, depressive things. He's like a local, you know, doctor. So he sees a lot of really intense stuff. And he there's like a two or three year period. Um, he's married at that time. I think his wife is with him. And there's like a two or three year period where he has an intense morphine addiction. So basically, he's the guy who has access to the morphine. And he's seeing a lot of really crazy things that he can't handle as a sensitive a, you know, person. So he gets addicted to morphine. There's speculation on whether he needed it for like a medical reason or if he just started using it as sort of like escape just treatment. recreational. Yeah. Yeah. Recreational. Like I need to get the hell out of the situation. But anyway, he was addicted to morphine for a little bit. He had a spiritual crisis. And I think that that period in his life gave him some insight into 
the very sort of arcane and early versions of mental health treatment in what you can imagine, you know, uh, early 20th century Russia. So, um, <laughs> you know, and there are themes in the Master and Margarita of like asylums and stuff like that that I'll get into. Um, again, whipping through his biography, his he eventually come, like moves back to Moscow. All during this time, he had like three, uh, three like separate um, romantic relationships. He had like three wives in his life and stuff like that. So he's he's divorcing and getting married multiple times. Um, his first plays, basically he starts an actual job at the Moscow Arts Theater, um, abbreviated as MAT, which is like his first plays get published there. And I think that that's inspiration, like a huge inspiration for how, when he starts working on the Master and Margarita, there's a lot of stuff that has to do with the playwriting community and the writing community in Moscow at the time. Um, but in this sort of uh era of his life and this era of creativity stalin is now like the the soviet union exists and stalin is the leader of the country so at this time like he has an official job at the moscow arts theater publishing plays but literally everything you do is you write something and you submit it to like a board of censors like there is literally you know some commissar or something that's like i only allow the best, you know, pro Stalin plays or, you know, pro regime yeah. plays to get through. Okay. Cause I was going to ask you, is there a reason why this came out? This was published after his death. Like that whole timeline you were describing is that, is this why? Yes. So basically okay. what's going on with the master mark, like, so he publishes a few plays that do get through the censors and he always is known actually for sort of slipping through the censors and people are like, his plays are always political in nature. Um, and sometimes they're analyzing like they're like he wrote one play or uh, a short. Um, I don't know if it's a play or a novel called The White Guard, which is about kind of the development of like um, the opposing side during the Ukrainian civil conflict and stuff like that. So he is a very interesting person politically because he has this job at the at the moscow arts theater and he kind of gets these plays through where everyone is like what's the deal like this guy like gets things published that are like still a little bit dicey and then they get taken off the stage and then they get put on the stage and something that's really interesting that it's sort of hard to find out more information on and, I, and i'd love to read a little bit more a few more articles on this is he did have, I don't think he ever personally met Stalin face to face, but he did have a personal relationship with Stalin and talked with him on the phone several times. So basically, from my perspective, and I don't, I haven't done enough research to say definitively, but something was going on with Stalin where he kind of took Bulgakov and like protected him. Like, even though he was this guy who was anti-regime and his politics were not in line with Stalin's, you know, strict sort of order he had these jobs at the moscow arts theater and he would get plays like through and sort of be protected and people didn't really know why it was just like stalin mm. was like cool with him <laughs> for some reason it was just a front he wanted he wanted to be entertained he's getting bored right yeah i don't know what was going on but he was okay with bulgakov in some sense <laughs> even though yeah. a lot of the other people in between him and stalin like all the censors and stuff had problems with his plays um 
yeah, it, it's it's sort of just an interesting sort of dichotomy there. So then when he's working at the Moscow Arts Theater is when he starts to work on his masterwork, The Master and Margarita. Um, it is extremely interesting to the plot of Master and Margarita that he actually burned the manuscript once. That is in the plot of Master and Margarita, which I'll get into in, in a second. Um, but just hold in your mind that at one time he worked about like he worked on the manuscript and then burned it. Um, okay. And then basically, um, this is during an era. It's still in that same literature era where sometimes people would publish like one chapter in you know a literary magazine or something. Things came out in like episodic order, kind of like how uh, um, uh, Alexander Dumas. What was he? He was writing the Count. You know how it like came out in the Count of Monte Cristo came out in like chunks. Yeah, yeah. I so, miss those days. Serialized. <laughs> I miss that you missed those <laughs> days before we were born. Yes. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> and so it came out in weird ways like that. It also, The Master and Margarita, because of how controversial it is, and I promise all of this autobiographical information is going to start making sense when I talk about the plot, because of how controversial it is, it makes sense that um, there was actually, you can imagine, because of the strict kind of censorship during this, the early Soviet Union and stuff, there was actually a legal, there are many different versions of the Master and Margarita, and some of them were like illegally hand copied. So it would be like, oh, this came out in some like random like magazine in another language. And it's like the chat, the missing chapter from Master and Margarita. And like, we're going to, you know, put it into our own version and then distribute that, you know, throughout, you know, Ukraine or Moscow or Russia or like all these different yeah. versions were flying all over the place because of how controversial his writing was. Um, so keep all that stuff in mind. And then eventually kind of the end of the the biographical stuff that I want to talk about is he does die from sclerosis of the kidneys, which was the same disease his father suddenly died of. So basically he had some, you know, bad DNA and, and bad, you know, blood in the family where he just died very suddenly. Like it was basically mm -hmm. just like, oh, and then, you know, over the course of a few months, it's just like he starts losing his eyesight. He starts, you know, getting really sick every single day, crazy migraines, and then he's dead. So it was, you know, obviously a crazy time for his wife, for his family, and for the writing community because they were like, holy shit, Volgakov just died really suddenly. Okay. So now that you know a little bit about Bulgakov, let's talk about all of those like societal pressures that are going on and everything with Stalin and the regime changes and everything like that. Let's talk about the actual what Master and Margarita is about. So on its surface, the Master and Margarita is two novels. The first novel concerns a lot of magical realism, which I said I'm, I'm learning to accept, but it's basically the plot of, the main plot of the book is that the devil comes to Moscow and he wreaks havoc by basically infiltrating a uh, the theater called the a theater called the variety and the writing community around the theater called the variety and another restaurant that's connected to it and he basically starts to destroy people's lives kill them get rid of them get them shipped out of moscow make them disappear into hell by um using foreign currency as like a way to destroy people 
So this is actually a common theme in during regime changes and stuff like that, and certainly in the Soviet Union, where if you were caught with foreign currency, you would like go to jail forever, or you know be sent off to camps and stuff like that. Yeah. So in the Master and Margarita, um, the devil takes the form of a black, like uh, like a dark magician named Woland, W O L A N D. Um, if you're curious, I cast him as uh, David Bowie in my mind. <laughs> and he, well, there's a part in the book where it says that he has like two different colored eyes and stuff like that. So I was like, this is definitely Bowie in his prime. Like, um, like uh, sorry, like man who fell to earth or like. Man who fell, definitely man who fell to earth, like like prime okay. Bowie. Here, I'll, I'll, read you a, I'll read you a description of, of Woland right here from the book. So. Two eyes were firmly fixed on Margarita's face, the right one with a gold spark in its depths that drilled through to the bottom of anyone's soul, and the left one empty and black like the narrow eye of a needle, like the entrance to a bottomless well of all kinds of darkness and shadows. Woolen's face was twisted to one side, the right-hand corner of his mouth was drawn downwards, and on his high, bald brow, deep wrinkles had been incised parallel to his sharp eyebrows. It was as if the skin on Woolen's face had been burnt forever by the sun. So he's like this really mystical sort of like devil-like creature that takes human form and basically wreaks havoc. Like the, the, the very beginning of the book, and this is no spoilers at all, the very beginning scene of the book is two writers meeting um, the devil, basically. And he basically all these crazy... It's always through crazy circumstance. So it's never just... Woland as the as the dark magician killing someone with a knife it's basically like oh he happened to trip and he fell in front of the in front of the tram and then it cut his head off you know like that mm -hmm. kind of thing um the devil uh Woland the dark magician also travels with an awesomely deep like crew of characters he has basically an assistant named Azazelo, another like crazy assistant. Um, I kind of forget his name, but he has many names. One is Fajo. And he also travels around with um, a massive black cat that can take human form called Behemoth. So there's all these like, there's all these like themes of like ancient kind of like Greek poetry and, you know, Roman kind of like themes of like the devil and stuff like that. And um, they wreak havoc on Moscow, basically. They make a bunch of these writers disappear. Uh, the master is, um, who you later learn in the book, is someone who is inside of an insane asylum and the devil had previously sent him there in the same way that he's like fucking around with everyone in the book now. And the master, that guy who's in the asylum, and I know that this sounds crazy because the, like there's really no way to summarize the plot. It's a very famous book for like having no genre and stuff like that because it's just so intense. That, that's good though. That's right up my alley. Yeah. Um, the master is, uh, this goes on like in the beginning, you know how I said it's actually two books. So I feel like the master of Margarita is really very far ahead of its time because it also has a subplot which to me feels very modern where, okay, so the devil is tormenting Moscow and he goes into the theater and does all this crazy shit um, and he kills people and whatever. And then he also, there's a subplot that is this patient named the master who's in an insane asylum. He wrote a book about Pontius Pilate and the death of Jesus Christ. 
So that subplot is also like every few chapters you sink into this like subplot that's about Pontius Pilate and like the destruction of Yerushalayim, which is like the city of Jerusalem, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that subplot going on where you're like you're reading about um, Jesus like as a historical figure and basically like the crucifixion and everything that happens around it. And that is one of the plots that the master, the guy in the insane asylum, wrote. And again, remember how I told you that Bulgakov um, once burned his manuscript? Yeah. So the plot and the reason why it's called The Master and Margarita is because the master has a woman who's been in love with him named Margarita, and she doesn't know where her master went after the devil sent him to the insane asylum like she lost him many years ago but what she did hold on to was the half burned manuscript of his novel the 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 novel about Pontius Pilate so basically her only possession from her old relationship with the master is the burned manuscript of his masterful novel <laughs> so Bulgakov is operating on many autobiographical levels. Um, there's a there's a great quote in here that when the de- when when the devil Woland brings the manuscript back to the master, he's like, "I thought I got rid of this, and it's one of the most powerful." Um, uh, it's one of the most powerful uh, sentences in the book where the where the devil basically says, "Manuscripts never burn." Like they never go away. You can't destroy them because they're part of you. Um, so it's a very interesting book. I mean, everything that I've told you, each theme that I've told you about is sort of masterfully um, executed in there. There's also, this book is very close to my heart because there is a lot of very deep and emotional understanding of times in your life where you feel uh you know like where you're going through some struggles with mental health um i have gone through struggles with anxiety and stuff like that and bulgakov obviously went through that morphine addiction and i think was probably in some sort of permanent care at some point because there is um basically madmen relating to everyone that the devil touches in this book basically becomes a madman Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting writing um, about that. I'm going to read a quick um, one of my favorite metaphors um, in the book. I, I will read from this section right here. So um, let me start. So, for example, I began to be afraid of the dark. In short, the stage of mental illness began. It seemed to me, particularly as I was falling asleep, that the tentacles of some highly flexible cold octopus were stealing directly towards my heart, and I had to sleep with the light on. My beloved changed greatly. Of course, I didn't tell her about the octopus, but she could see that there was something bad happening to me. She grew thin and pale, stopped laughing, and kept on asking me to forgive her for advising me to print the extract. She said I should drop everything and go away to the south, to the Black Sea, spending all the money that remained of the hundred thousand on the trip. She was insistent, and so as not to quarrel, something told me I wouldn't have to go away to the Black Sea. I promised her I'd do it in a few days' time, but she said she'd get me the ticket herself, then took out all my money, around ten thousand rubles, that is, and handed it over. 
It was dusk in mid-October, and she left. I lay down on the couch and fell asleep without lighting the lamp. I was awoken by the sensation that the octopus was there. Fumbling in the dark, I just about managed to light the lamp. My pocket was showed two o'clock in the morning. I'd laid down falling ill and woken up sick. It suddenly seemed to me that the autumn darkness would knock out the window panes, pour into the room, and I'd choke in it as though in ink. I got up like a man no longer in control of himself. I cried out, and the idea to, came to me of running to somebody, if only to my landlord upstairs. I struggled with myself like a madman. I had the strength to get as far as the stove and stir up the firewood inside. When it began to crackle and the door began, began rattling, I seemed to feel a little better. I rushed into the hall and lit the light there and found a bottle of white wine, uncorked it, and started drinking the wine out of the bottle. This dulled the fear somewhat at least to the extent that I didn't run to the landlord. I returned to the stove. I opened the door so that the heat began scorching my face and hands and whispered, sense that I've had a calamity. Come, come, come. So basically, I mean, I can go on because some of the, some of the sections are long, but he has a really kind of interesting handle on what a real panic attack is, like what a real sort of depressive state is. Um, mm -hmm. And... It's just a fascinating book. I mean, everything about it, like going into like the the stuff about mental health, but also the stuff about the devil. There's some amazing scenes. Like one of the most famous scenes is um, when he manipulates Margarita to come visit him in one of the ho in one of the apartments that he has assumed control of. He um, kind of brings her through a ball um, that is like you know, like a dance through hell where like a bunch of people from Russian history are coming out of like are being born out of the fireplace. And they actually happen to all be people who have poisoned people like throughout Russian, like famous really? people who have poisoned other people throughout Russian history. So there's all these like amazing footnotes and references to like, this was someone who, you know, was suspected of killing all three of her husbands and stuff like that. And like all this other like craziness that comes out that famous scene, um, is actually in like people believe it's inspired by a real life party that Bulgakov went to during the uh, Soviet Union, um, where people were basically he saw he witnessed a lot of income disparity um, during the Soviet Union. So he went to this crazy party and he was like he, he basically put it in his novel like that's what hell is and stuff like that, like like the devil taking advantage over people. And there's just so many great themes. This is why it was it was banned. It was, you know, you couldn't find it. They had like the ultimate version that we have now is basically a manuscript that he didn't completely like you can sense some things in the book aren't complete. Like there are some footnotes towards the end that are references mm -hmm. to characters that aren't like 100 percent complete because the themes in his book are so incredibly powerful. I mean, it's about the devil destroying people with foreign currency. It's about how people don't really exist unless they have their documents, you know? So basically like the devil starts to erase people's identities just because, because of his otherworldly powers, he has the power to get rid of people's identity and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the master and Margarita, there's no way for me to explain it. You just have to read the book. And, uh, <laughs> Coming from coming from me, somebody who doesn't love magical realism so much, you know, I was fully into the devil being in Moscow, and um, <laughs> you know, I, I again, it comes with some pitfalls of re reading classic Russian literature. Everyone has like six names, and you're expected to know all of their different names and stuff like that. So I definitely had to take some notes yeah, in the book about yeah. who is who. Um, <laughs> but it's it's an absolutely masterwork novel. The more you research it, the more you think, okay, I, I definitely want to read this again because there's some stuff that you can miss. 
and uh yeah it sounds it, it sounds in- insane it sounds to me like it's a black comedy vaudeville faust oh 12, yeah 12 monkeys uh brothers karamazov everything all mixed no, together it definitely <laughs> you, you you definitely you brought up the right word faust is a huge reference to the novel like a deal with the devil i think he even references faust a few times but then a ton of the footnotes i happen to have a really great version which is by um that translated by Hugh Applin and it is an Alma classics edition and it has some great <laughs> footnotes in the back about um you know reference his literary references references to Faust and stuff like that um and again that amazing scene where it's all the people from Russian literature who have who Bulgakov says has definitely gone to hell so yeah <laughs> um yeah uh the master and margarita completely inexplicable novel with many characters but um at the center of it all is is a is a mad genius who wrote his ultimate script and the woman who wants him will will make any deal with the devil to reunite him with it so okay (laughs) but also yeah also interesting to me how you're talking about how it was passed around and assembled like piecemeal um through different circles or whatever right um, like right <laughs> at crazy. this at this point we enjoy like ultimate editions that are basically sort of highly edited and figured out for us but throughout it's time a, it's been a different novel to many different people in many different languages yeah you got it's blade runner director's cut yes we we now enjoy <laughs> the director's cut but for a while there was many different versions so yeah all right that sounds incredible how long is it um it's a decently long book. My edition is something like 390 pages, so like almost 400 pages. Um, but I burned through it. I mean, I think I read this in the course of three or four weeks, so like a month. Nice. Um, very addicting. And I, I actually happen to have the benefit that my girlfriend is uh, a native Russian from St. Petersburg, so I could, I could, you know, get to, and she's read the book as well, so I could get to a point in the book and be like, what did this mean? And like, what do you think? Um, <laughs> your personal translator. Yes. So yes. Interpreter. <laughs> there we go. All right. Awesome. Yes. Master and Margarita. Check it out. Nice. All right. Ready for mine? I'm ready for yours. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Tom Hardy, born September 15th, 1977, is an English actor and producer. After studying method acting at the Drama Center in London, Hardy made his film debut in Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down, and has since appeared in such films as Star Trek Nemesis, Rock and Rolla, Bronson, Warrior, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Lawless, Locke, The Drop, and The Revenant, for which he received a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. In 2015, Hardy portrayed Mad Max Rakotansky in Mad Max Fury Road and both Cray twins in Legend. He has appeared in three Christopher Nolan films, Inception, The Dark Knight Rises as Bane, and Dunkirk as an RIF fighter pilot. He starred as Eddie Brock slash Venom in the anti-hero film Venom. So, <laughs> can you yeah. guess where I might be going with this? No, I like Tom okay. Hardy, but I have no idea what his connection to literature is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so let me ask you this this is perfect then don't don't you think that it would suck to have someone with your same exact name just completely eclipse you in fame and recognition like not to mention wealth I'm guessing that whoever wrote your book is named Tom Hardy 
(laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're right. Uh, But can you think of other examples of that? You know, like there's an author named John Williams, you know, who wrote the book Stoner, uh, Butcher's Crossing. There's also a classical guitarist named John Williams, uh, part of the band Sky, taught by the great Andre Segovia. Yeah, I can't. I I know that there. Yeah, you think of the composer, but I I feel like there. I I'm there's one that I'm gonna think of as you describe this book, but I can't think of anything else. I got I got a couple here, so you you got some couple seconds Mm -hmm. to think. Uh, So the the great escape actor Steve McQueen, you Mm -hmm. have him, but you also have the Twelve Years a Slave director Steve McQueen. Right. Uh, Which honestly, when he was, when Steve, when the modern Steve McQueen was riding, rising to prominence, I was like really confused. (laughs) Yeah. Like the original one, he was, you know, dubbed the king of cool, but he never won an Oscar. So Mm -hmm. maybe eclipsed there. Uh, You got another one, you know, um, I mean, this is a little different, but uh, Katy Perry, her real name is actually Kate Hudson, but she changed it in order to avoid this kind of thing. Oh yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And uh, I guess a lesser example of that, Michael B. Jordan. He added the B because, you know, <laughs> you can't really outdo. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't really be Mike. Can't be Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if you you figured it out already, but today I want to talk about one of my favorite authors, actually, uh, Thomas Hardy. Thomas Hardy. And I mean, I would hope Tom Hardy's parents knew what was up, but I haven't really found any evidence to show. I wonder if he's named read, after the author. I wonder if he's read some Thomas Hardy. I, I don't know. I, uh, I'll have to tweet at him or something. I don't know. Anyways, uh, the real Thomas Hardy <laughs> was born in 1840, died in 1928. He was an English author who, I mean, he wanted to be remembered as a poet. But, you know, too bad your novels were really good. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're, you're a novelist in my head. Um, you know, he was part Chaucer in his, like, character building. He was part Tolkien in the fact that he created, like, a fictional region mm-hmm. complete with, like, a detailed map uh, that actually looks really similar to, like, the style of map that, like, Tolkien made. Mm-hmm. Um, he was sort of like a Bront brother-in-law or something like that and how he dealt with, you know, romance and intrigue. And uh, ultimately, I would say he was a realist. Mm-hmm. And I say that because, like, the character in his, characters in his books are quite often face down in shit. And, like, a lot of the times their fates are almost entirely in the hands of luck, which is, like, about as realistic of a life as I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's how things go. You're, you're born by luck, you roll the dice every day in some way or another, and you usually die by luck, too. Anyways, uh, Hardy, he grew up in Dorset, England. Uh, he was the son of a stonemason. He went to school until he was 16, and then he became like an apprentice to an architect, mm-hmm. which I didn't really know until doing research for the podcast here. And now like a lot of his in-depth descriptions of buildings and structures makes more sense because he, he does that a lot in his Mm -hmm. books so he moved to london at 22 he enrolled at king's college uh, while continuing working in architecture so like there's buildings and places in london where you could go and you'd be like oh like he had a hand in this Mm. like there's this crazy uh area where i guess they excavated like a uh a cemetery part of a cemetery to make room for some railway or something so there's like this tree that's surrounded by a bunch of gravestones and that was like parting something that he worked on so it's called like the hardy tree hmm, okay. uh, which is 
pretty crazy. So, you know, he has a lot of famous works that like mostly center around this fictional territory that he made called Wessex. Uh, I've read a good number of them, actually. Like you've got, let me know if any of these ring a bell, uh, Far From the Madding Crowd. You got The Return of the Native, which is probably my overall favorite of his. It's not yeah, the one I've heard of today, Return but... of the Native. That's like his most famous, right? Uh, one of them, maybe. I mean, he's got like a he's got like a solid top five. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably my favorite, though. I mean, I just found out there's an audiobook of it, and it's read by Alan Rickman. So I oh. think that would be like really worth checking out. Cool. Uh, you got the mayor of the mayor of Casterbridge. That's one that I think they read in schools sometimes. The Woodlanders, which, if I remember correctly, Stephen King gave a shout out to in uh, his book on writing. I think he said like it has the most complete characters of any books he's ever read or something. That's that's something coming from Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've also got Tess of the Durbervilles. I don't know how to pronounce this. Tess of the Durbervilles. That one I think they read in school a lot too. But today I want to talk about his last novel, the one that caused him to quit writing novels outright. Okay. Which is 1895's Jude the Obscure. All right. You heard of this one? No. Sounds obscure. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I picked it up for uh, years and years ago. Um, so a little backstory on me as uh, when I was reading this book. So when I first read it, I was not in a good mood. It was like four years ago. I had just torn my ACL and PLC mm. uh, in, my, in my knee. That's the posterior lateral corner. It's a pretty rare combo of injuries. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty good time to get some reading done. Like when you're complete, <laughs> when you're completely incapacitated. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, like this book was just what I needed at the time. Um, I sat in a lawn chair with my leg propped up, like before I even had surgery or anything. I was uh, leg propped up just inside my garage with the door open, like a nice spring day. Basically just read for a couple days straight like that. And, you know, this book was good for me because it is so damn bleak. Uh, doom is just hanging everywhere. And even even before things get really bad. So about this book, uh, Jude the Obscure, it's about Jude Folly, who is a working class orphan child whose only dream is to become a scholar, but life and chance are constantly getting in the way, uh, and he gets in his own way. He devotes basically all of his free time, which isn't much because he has to work for meager wages all the time. Um, He devotes all that time to studying his ratty secondhand grammar books, but because of his lot in life, like his dreams are always miles away. Uh, He's from a small town. He walks down the main road at night, uh, walking far enough just to see the lights of the city of Christminster, which is like uh, where he longs to go. It's basically modeled after the real life Oxford. You know, it's the center of uh, prestige and education. Anyways, uh, the story here, it's about Jude's poor choices and his bad luck. It's about his ambition. And, you know, no matter how strong his ambition is, he takes steps backwards every time he falters, even for a second. And that's how things kind of go for Hardy's characters. <laughs> like, it's always Murphy's Law. 
um, the characters are always aware of what could have been. Mm. And it's always very like melancholy. Um, so I want to give like a quick example here of how things usually go for him. Like, I don't want to summarize the whole plot because there's a lot of good twists and a lot of like devastating blows in here that, uh, you just need to kind of be in the moment when you're reading. It's best to not know about them beforehand. Uh, but in the beginning of the book, you know, he's a bright child, very little opportunity. Um, he's living with his aunt at the time who like openly kind of hates him. Uh, so he's reached out at this point to his old teacher to see if he can obtain some books for his independent study. Um, and this is what finally happens when they show up. The book was an old one, 30 years old, soiled and marked at random with dates 20 years earlier than his own day. But this was not the cause of Jude's amazement. He learned for the first time that there was no law of transmutation. As in his innocence, he had supposed there was in some degree, but the grammarian did not recognize it, but that every word in both Latin and Greek was to be individually committed to memory at the cost of years of plotting. Jude flung down the books, lay backward along the broad trunk of the elm, and was an utterly miserable boy for the space of a quarter of an hour. As he had often done before, he pulled his hat over his face and watched the sun peering insidiously at him through the interstices of the straw. This was Latin and Greek then, was it? This grand delusion? The charm he had supposed in store for him was really a labor like that of Israel and Egypt. What brains they have in Christminster and the great schools, he presently thought, to learn words one by one up to tens of thousands. There were no brains in his head equal to this business, and as the little sun rays continued to stream in through his hat at him, he had wished he had never seen a book, that he might never see another, that he had never been born. Somebody might have come along that way, who would have asked him his trouble and might have cheered him up by saying that his notions were further advanced than those of the grammarian. But nobody did come, because nobody does, and under the crushing recognition of his gigantic error, Jude continued to wish himself out of the world. Interesting. <laughs> so. So you're sitting there with a torn ACL reading about how you want to wish yourself out of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Um but from there, I mean, so the circumstances are dire in this book, but the way that Hardy writes, like he is such a good descriptive author that he can paint these vivid scenes and it's, you know, it can still be about tragedy, but it's like, it's still beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. But anyways, moving forward with the story. So he studies all day, you know, for years. He becomes an ordinary man with ambitions, but you know, he, he always lacks common sense and the decisions he makes are obscure and like obscure is a word that pops up often in the book. Uh, so by chance and with a little bit of trickery, because you know, he can't ever catch a break. Uh, he falls, he's about like 19 at this time. I think he falls into a hasty marriage with a girl named Arabella. And this like completely derails his ambitions and his dreams, but like very quickly, it's apparent that the marriage is not working. Mm. Um, she ends up leaving the country and I mean, he's sells everything he has, gives her all the money. Like eventually he gets back to his ambitious self, like after recovering from this and he eventually gets to like the coveted Christminster, like, you know, 15 years after initially dreaming about it. But again, he becomes like a victim of his naivety. Like the same thing, like he 
he's like he was so amped up about getting these books to read and then he gets the books and he's like oh i actually have to like put in all this work it's not like (laughs) um yeah so the same thing kind of happens to him when he gets when he gets to where he's been longing to go to forever so i'll read a quick section here too it was not till now when he found himself actually on the spot of his enthusiasm that jude perceived how far away from the object of that enthusiasm he really was only a wall divided him from those happy young contemporaries of his whom he shared a common mental life men who had nothing to do from morning till night but to read mark learn and inwardly digest only a wall but what a wall every day every hour as he went in search of labor he saw them going and coming also rubbed shoulders with them heard their voices marked their movements the conversation of some of the more thoughtful among them seemed oftentimes owing to his long and persistent preparation for this place to be peculiarly akin to his own thoughts yet he was far from them of course he was he was a young workman in a white blouse and with stone dust in the creases of his clothes and in passing him they did not even see him or hear him rather saw through him as through a pane of glass at their familiars beyond whatever they were to him he to them was not on the spot at all and yet he had fancied he would be close to their lives by coming there but the future lay ahead after all and if he could only be so fortunate as to get into good employment he would put up with the inevitable so he thanked god for his health and strength and took courage for the present he was outside the gates of everything colleges included perhaps some day he would be inside those palaces of light and leading he might some day look down on the world through their pains nice so you know he's constantly falling down but he's always you know coming like picking himself up still chasing his dreams um but eventually you know he's in Christminster. he's working as an architect eventually his heart conflicts with these dreams yet again as he ends up falling in love with his cousin named sue <laughs> and like i don't i don't want to i mean it's more of a common thing i guess but uh it was still like looked down upon by his family and everything um but i don't want it or not really his family doesn't have much family but society um i don't want to give too many spoilers you know because there's some like i said there's some ridiculously heavy hitting scenes at the end of this book um like darker than you can imagine like i can't even think of a comparable for some of some (laughs) of the worst parts here and you know anyone who's read this book knows like immediately what i'm talking about but from you know this point on the story becomes about how jude and sue they find each other then lose each other then find and lose each other they're you know they're blocked when they want to be together they're stuck when they don't want to be together it's sort of like a uh a, D- a dickensian sam and diane mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh i, I think that's it's a, it's a very interesting kind of relationship because they're both interesting sort of characters. Um, I just want to read one more thing, just something from much later in the book without any context when like Jude has you know fallen even farther. Okay. Finding himself the center of curiosity, quizzing and comment, Jude was not inclined to shrink from open declarations of what he had no great reason to be ashamed of and in a little while was stimulated to say in a loud voice to the listening throng. It is, dif- it is a difficult question, my friends, for any young man, that question I had to grapple with, and which thousands are weighing at the present moment in these uprising times. 
whether to follow uncritically the track he finds himself in without considering the, his aptness for it, or to consider what his aptness or bent may be and reshape his course accordingly. I tried to do the latter and I failed, but I don't admit that my failure uh, proved my view to be a wrong one or that my success would have made it a right one, though that's how we appraise such attempts nowadays. I mean, not by their essential soundness, but by their accidental outcomes. If I had ended by becoming like one of these gentlemen in red and black that we saw dropping in here by now, everybody would have said, see how wise that young man was to follow the bent of his nature. But having ended no better than I began, they say, see what a fool that fellow was in following a freak of his fancy. However, it was my poverty and not my will that consented to be beaten. It takes two or three generations to do what I tried to do in one, and my impulses, affections, vices perhaps they should be called, were too strong not to hamper a man without advantages, who should be as cold-blooded as a fish and as selfish as a pig to have a really good chance of being one of his country's worthies. You may ridicule me. I am quite willing that you should. I am a fit subject, no doubt. But I think if you knew what I have gone through these last few years, you would rather pity me. And if they knew, he nodded towards the college, it is just possible they would do the same. It sounds like a book that's like, ultimately, it's like really negative, but it feels like you're like, you only can be at peace with where you are. Sort of. I mean, it, bits and pieces of that, you can get that impression. Mm -hmm. But overall, the book is, you know, very dark. And it's more a criticism of being like of the fact that people have to be stuck where they are. Mm-hmm. like um but i just love the way he writes i don't know because some sometimes the just the way he writes can be like the uplifting part you know um because he, he was he was very very smart and uh threw together throw together some descriptions uh like almost no one else i can think of um but like the way i think about this book it's a criticism of you know many things like it's a criticism of modern society uh, criticism of the institution of marriage, um, the class constraints of Victorian society, and like the uh, exclusivity of universities. Yeah, I liked I liked that what he said. Uh, you know, I what I tried I tried to do in one generation what it should take three. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think that carries a lot of weight still. You know. Yeah, for um, sure. There's a lot of people who are, you know, first generation, first of their family to go to university or, or to have like a, a really successful career and stuff like that. But um, so this book, you know, was a criticism of a lot of, of a lot of things, but it received it. It caused a lot of stir and, you know, it had so much pushback that he, you know, quit writing novels outright like i said before like people called it jude the obscene um <laughs> and you know what caused such a stir here was like one of two things like one was like the graphic nature of the tragedies in this book like there's like i said there's a gut punch like uh, about three quarters through and uh and almost more importantly what people latched on to even worse was like the character of sue uh jude's cousin she is extremely modern for like a book that was written um she's like kind of very liberated as like mm -hmm. a woman like her her sexuality her like unique romantic idealism are very modern like how she deals with the relationships in her life 
uh, what I guess was very shocking to readers back then. Like she, she, you know, she bears children with Jude, but like the intimacy is very complicated. Like the bonds of marriage are not appealing to her. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's something that gets them ostracized from the community. And, you know, it's this distance that continues to bring Jude to forks in the road where he's, you know, bound to make the wrong decision. Mm. Um, but, you know, Thomas Hardy, his characters are very flawed like this, like uh, flawed in the terms of the outcome of their actions. Not really like it's not like they're flawed, like they're they're bad people, like, you know, but he doesn't expect us to like them. They just are. And, you know they're always dealing with luck you can see them messing up in that way and it keeps you you know focused on every detail and how like the tragedy will unfold dude i can't believe he wrote this amazing emotional novel and then starred in black hawk down (laughs) (laughs) it's funny like whole new level of tom hardy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like Tom Hardy too, but doesn't it seem like most of his like roles are meant for him to like not be talking that much or something, just be like <laughs> a dude like Mad Max. He's got like, he's mute or whatever he's got. Right. Like, yeah. he, he like can't talk like in Bane. He's got his a mask on and his voice is or in Batman. His voice is masked like um, Venom. You know, he's not, he's like Venom half the time. Uh, but anyways, yeah, he's come a long way in the past hundred years i guess yeah (laughs) Uh, but anyways you know like this book rocks uh it was i i loved it when i read it and then i i reread i didn't get all the way through it again in preparation for this podcast but uh what i did read was uh it it was awesome to to revisit you know it keeps you interested i didn't get to that gut punch but um i don't know if i can handle it again uh you know he he creates incredibly vivid scenes. He's much better at like description and internal dialogue than actual conversations between characters. But like, that's where most of the story develops. Like when Jude or other people, they find moments of solitude. Mm. Um, So it's always their thoughts that really become very um, interesting to read. And those are the sections that you'll highlight or, you know, you'll fold a corner in the page to revisit later and you know from me that's like as good of a thing you could, as you can say about a book like you're folding corners and mm-hmm. you're like i want to remember that part awesome um yeah uh so a couple quick hits here to wrap it up um something podcast related actually uh apparently i just found this out yesterday michael you know michael ian black comedian yeah i love you do yeah, he has a podcast called Obscure, Ooh. where he reads from this book exclusively. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, with his own commentary. I guess it started in May of last year. I just looked it up. He's on episode thirty-seven. Whoa! He must be reading like five pages at a time or something. It's like a four hundred page book. Um, but I can. I haven't listened to it yet. But like, I think I'm gonna check it out. It sounds like a. It's a really interesting choice of a book to like expand to a whole. You know hundred hours of it looks like he's gonna get there um i could see how yeah yeah i could see how you might read like five pages at a time of this and like ruminate on it Uh like because many times you'll see you know thoughts reflected that you've had at one point or another um so yeah uh michael if you're listening to this if this gets to you hit me up 
he has guests on the show, so I'd love to <laughs> come on and, and talk and talk Hardy. <laughs> talk Tom Hardy. That's awesome. That, yeah. uh, that's a funny thing because there's another. He he's him and him and that whole like the Michael Ian Black and like David Wayne crowd. I feel like they always have like little things that are so great that you can enjoy, but then they end. And it's sort of yeah. like uh, you know he has that show Michael and Michael have issues, which is a great show, but it was very short. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with Stella, um, and also he's also one of my favorite podcasters for a completely different podcast. He has a podcast called Mike and Tom Eat Snacks, and uh, it's him and yeah. his friend Tom eating snacks and rating them. Nice. <laughs> from around the world, they get they like fans send them like Japanese candies and like weird oh, like Ukrainian like chips and stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> Damn, I definitely yeah, checked so, that out. Uh, Mike. Yeah, Mike needs to let me come on the show and talk. Obscure. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> um anyway, yeah, one more quick quick thing. Uh apparently Tom Hardy he invented the term Thomas Hardy, sorry, invented the term cliffhanger in 1873. Uh Ooh. because in one of his books, he literally left one of his protagonists hanging off a cliff. Whoa, nice. And he, he called it that, too. The cliffhanger. Um, yeah. And he was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature twice. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> There's so a lot to, Jude the Obscure. a lot to unpack there. Jude the Obscure. Yeah. Very depressing. Very beautiful still, though. I wonder what ta- what Michael Ian Black's podcast is going to be like when he gets to the famous gut punch that you talked about. Maybe, maybe <laughs> he already got there to yet. it. But... I, basing... I'm going by the episode titles, and I don't think he's there yet. All right. I think he's taking his time. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, Send us an email at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. That's the name for all of our other sites, sbrthepodcast, no spaces, uh, send us any books you want us to read and review, some ideas for games, maybe tell us about some shit we got wrong, some stuff we got right, uh, anything. All right, thanks, everyone. Peace.